Thank you for joining for another episode of Turkey Book Talk. I'm William Armstrong speaking to you from here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. Give our Facebook page a like and or follow the Twitter account at Turkey Book Talk. There are show notes and links at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com. And please do rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it, which helps more people find it. Do consider signing up to become a Turkey Book Talk member for exclusive extras and to help us keep going. Joining as a signed up member gets you transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on Turkey Book Talk via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which so far amounts to very nearly 100 conversations and which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. IB Taurus, which is part of Bloomsbury, has well over 400 books in its Turkey and Ottoman history series, including both academic and general interest titles. Turkey Book Talk members receive a special code for a 35% discount on books in that series, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics, journalism, the Middle East and Europe. That archive was written over the course of five years and used to be available for free online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, all you have to do is pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's official Patreon account. New episodes go out every two weeks, so the monthly membership price is no more than $6. Of course, if you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's get on with our latest episode. In it, we are speaking to Hannah Lucinda Smith. She has been the Turkey correspondent for The Times of London since 2013. And she's the author of the forthcoming book, Erdogan Rising, The Battle for the Soul of Turkey, which is due to be published any minute now by William Collins. The book is a part biography of President Erdogan, part journalistic account of contemporary Turkish history. It's a very vivid, very readable account, full of insight about reporting on Turkey over the last few years and Hannah made use of a very wide range of contacts and experiences to put it together. I started by asking her how she first came to report in Turkey back in 2013. Sure. Well, I am. Um, I mean, first of all, I never had any kind of plans or thoughts about being a Turkey correspondent. What I wanted to do was to go and cover the Syrian war, which in 2013, it had been rumbling on for a bit over a year. It was obviously a big news story. It was still a point where you could, as a, as a foreign journalist, go into the rebel-held parts of Syria. And the way to do that was to go to southern Turkey and to cross the border, which was still open. So you could literally go to the border crossings close to Antakya and close to Kilis, and you could show your passport. And in some cases, you'd have to sign a, a paper with the Turkish government saying that you accepted the risks of going into a war zone, and then you could go in. It was incredibly easy. So I, I was working actually in television mostly. At the time, I've been working for current affairs investigative programmes on the BBC and on Channel 4. Um, but I really wanted to write. So I I'd saved some money and took some time off from television 
jobs. And I thought I'd spend probably like four weeks staying in southern Turkey and going in and out of Syria and do some reporting. And while I was there, I decided to extend it. I decided to stay another couple of weeks. I'd, I'd gone into Syria. I'd done some reporting. I'd managed to sell some articles. It was all pretty interesting. So I, I decided to stay another couple of weeks. And then actually when I went back to London, I thought, no, I'm going to gonna risk it. I'm going to move out there full time. So then pretty quickly, I, I decided to pack up in London and move to Antakya, where there were a lot of journalists at that time and, and based myself there. I, I wasn't planning to cover Turkey at all. And I really didn't concentrate on Turkey for you know quite a few months. So I was, I was living in Antakya. I was hanging out with Syrians. I was going and working in Syria. And that was my main focus. But then obviously, as Syria became very, very dangerous, um, you know, there came a point where the risk of going into rebel held Syria just wasn't worth it anymore. You know, there were a lot of journalists going missing. And even border areas of Turkey, they weren't, I wouldn't say dangerous, but there was certainly an atmosphere there. And we were all sort of getting kind of worried about what kinds of people were there and how easy it might be to kidnap a foreigner and take them over the border. So in late summer of 2013, I decided to move up to Istanbul and sit it out. And I thought I would at some point in the coming months be able to go back into Syria again. And obviously that's not how it turned out. You know, I moved up to Istanbul and within months, things got really, really interesting there. So obviously in December 2013, the Iranian gold dealing scandal broke out and from there Turkey just went on an absolute roller coaster and uh, and yeah I, I mean although I still carried on reporting on Syria and I, I still pay a lot of attention to it really from that point on Turkey became the story that I was covering. Now you spent a lot of time in Syria uh, as you mentioned there crossing into northern Syria Aleppo spending time among rebels and you talk about this in the book. There's a big section about Syria and how that conflict has really shaken Turkey, reshaped the politics of Turkey in a very, very profound way. Talk about that, you know, reflect on how Syria and the Syrian civil war over the last almost 10 years uh, has changed Turkey. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think, you know, the what happened across the Arab world has changed Turkey, but, but Syria in particular. I think it's always easy to see these things in hindsight. I remember when I came to Turkey in early 2013, the rebels were still taking ground in Syria. And I really thought, and I think a lot of the other journalists who were covering it really thought that we were going to be witnessing the ousting of Assad, just as journalists had witnessed the ousting of Gaddafi and Mubarak. We thought it was going to be like the third or sorry fourth after Tunisia the fourth in that toppling of Arab dictators past the Arab Spring um, and at that time Turkey was obviously backing the opposition but then so were a lot of other countries most western countries you know the US and the UK and France and, and various western countries were calling for Assad to step down and they were supporting to various degrees the opposition whether that's the political or the armed opposition and there were you know operations rooms in, in southern Turkey where US and UK and Intelligence, we're working with Turkish intelligence to help the rebels out. But pretty soon after I arrived there, it became really, really obvious that there were some very, very dodgy people crossing that border. You know, from mid-2015, you would see in places like Kilis, you would just see no end of kind of bearded men and men who looked like they might have come from Chechnya or Afghanistan and all these kinds of places were staying in the, in the hotels and the border towns. And then increasingly we were seeing 
getting them into Iceria. And it was pretty obvious how they were getting in and pretty obvious that that border was becoming a kind of highway for for extremists going into Syria. And I think that was that was Turkey's kind of strategic error. It, it really didn't do enough to cut off that flow of people quickly enough. And it really didn't quickly enough sense the change of direction in the West. I, I think by May 2013, when Erdogan went on a state visit to Washington and one of the items on his agenda to discuss with Obama was, was Syria and Erdogan was hoping that the US might throw some more weight behind Syrian rebels and really help them to finish off Assad. And, you know, by that time, ISIS already existed. Already huge numbers of foreign jihadists were coming through the border. And at that meeting, Obama told Erdogan, no, you, you have to cut off this flow of foreign jihadists. And really from that moment, the West never, never really wholeheartedly supported the opposition again. I mean, when they did do training and equip schemes from then on, it was, you know, for the purpose of fighting Al-Qaeda or fighting ISIS rather than fighting Assad. And, you know, Turkey still has flung its weight behind the opposition when almost everyone else, with the exception of Qatar, has turned their backs. Um, and I think, you know, Turkey feels very betrayed by that. It also feels very betrayed by the fact that the US then turned its attention to supporting the Kurds in Syria as a way of defeating ISIS. This has really caused a huge rift between Turkey and its Western allies. You know, some people that I spoke to who were within the AKP back at the time when, when Turkey decided to join in the alliance against Assad, uh, when it started to oppose Assad and break diplomatic ties, they said that actually you know, the Syrian war kind of marks a moment as well in Erdogan's own thinking when he started to think along more kind of ideologically Muslim brotherhood lines. So, you know, obviously the, the opposition movements in Egypt and in Tunisia, which eventually came into government, were brotherhood dominated ideologically very similar to Erdogan, people he could deal with. And, and I think that he thought that a similar thing was going to happen in Syria, that Assad would be overthrown, would be replaced by an elected brotherhood government, and that Erdogan would wield huge power and influence there. And obviously that is not the way it turned out. And you know, I think you can really trace back a lot of Turkey's shift away from the West and also shift towards Russia from the Syrian conflict. Now, a lot of the um, instability that spread from Syria and into Turkey in the form of terror attacks and various unpleasant incidents followed uh, for years. There was a period a couple of years ago where it looked very dicey indeed. And of course, during that period, right in the middle of a series of violent terror attacks and um, reflecting this instability was the coup attempt in July 2016. Of course, we've just passed the third anniversary of that coup attempt. And uh, you, of course, witnessed that coup attempt in its aftermath. You've reported on it extensively and this has been another fundamental force working on uh, on the direction of Turkey in the last few years what has it been like uh, reporting on that coup attempt its aftermath and uh, broadly how has the uh, the coup attempt changed Turkey in your eyes well, I mean, I think first of all, when when the coup happened in, in the immediate aftermath, the first thing I remember thinking at that time was just how overwhelmingly huge and difficult the story was to report. You know, obviously, all journalists who've been based here for any length of time have heard of the Gulenists, had done some research into them. Obviously, Erdogan's own kind of purge of the group or operations against the group had been going on since late 2013. But certainly, you know, 
know, no one I, I know is expecting the personal war between Erdogan and Gulen to play out like that. So, yeah, I mean, when it when it first happened, obviously there was just pure shock of it. But quite quickly from that chaos, you know, narratives started to emerge. So, I mean, pretty quickly it became obvious that a lot of the lower level soldiers who had taken part in, in that revolt, you know, a lot of the military students or military conscripts actually didn't know what was going on. In that week after the coup, I was going and speaking to a lot of lawyers who were working in the courthouse, speaking to a lot of families whose sons had been arrested. And and this theme was coming up again and again that, you know, they, they'd somehow been, you know, tricked into uh, taking part in this coup attempt. And then the next pattern that I noticed emerging from it was in the in the patterns of military uh, dismissals. Back in those early days, you know, the first days after the coup attempt, when, you know, there was thousands of people being dismissed every day, one of the things that the government was saying and, and kept repeating was that, you know, only 1% of the military took part in the coup. And what became pretty clear immediately was that those numbers were not the real story because the dismissals were overwhelmingly hitting the top brass. So, so by pretty soon after the coup, I think more than 50% of the generals and admirals had been dismissed um, from the army and navy. And of course, the hardest hit were the NATO officers, the, the officers serving on NATO postings in Europe, most of whom, I think about 90% of them have, have now been dismissed, but many of whom started receiving recall notices to Ankara days after the coup. Some of them started going, were arrested immediately on arrival, and, and then pretty quickly the ones who were still in Europe decided mostly to stay there and to claim asylum. Now, these officers talk to journalists quite a lot. They, of course, insist that they're not good that they had nothing to do with the coup. We don't, we don't know for sure whether they had anything to do with the coup or not but I mean certainly they they have not been properly investigated or you know properly tried in the court they, they've certainly in the case of ones running in Europe just been dismissed and had their passport stripped and in the case of the ones that returned been detained and are, and are waiting for trial or in some cases even waiting to be charged um, but the the narrative that sort of emerged there was what was happening in the military in the wake of the coup was a stripping out of the more pro-European officers, uh, you know, the officers on, on NATO placing and their replacement with the Eurasianist officers, the officers who are more nationalist and more warmer towards Russia and China. Another interesting thing that happened was quite soon after the coup, Erdogan then launched his first cross-border offensive into Syria. I think it started literally about six weeks after the coup and after you know huge amounts of top brass had been stripped out from the military. And, you know, to be honest, that first operation, Euphrates Shield, where the Turkish army was, it said its aim was to push ISIS back from the borderlands. They were trying to get to Al-Bab, which was a town about 30 miles inside Syria, still controlled by ISIS at that point. And, and the operation was an absolute disaster. You know, it took them absolutely weeks. A lot of Turkish soldiers died. They didn't manage to set up supply lines. And what a lot of the officers that I was speaking to were saying was, you know, this is because the army has basically been stripped out and Erdogan has replaced those people with loyalists and has now launched an operation that the old army was always trying to push back against. You know, the, the old generals were always saying Syria is a quagmire, the Turkish army should not get bogged down in it. So these, these for me were the really interesting things that emerged straight after the coup. Obviously, you know, we're now three years on. There are still post-coup roundups, you know, almost every week. They're happening so regularly. And I think it's just because of the scale of the number of people who've been arrested at this point. 
that it's it's kind of barely reported on anymore, apart from you know a couple of lines on the news wires. But you know we're still almost in a post coup state. Like the the state of emergency has been lifted, but it's been replaced with laws which are basically emergency powers anyway. There's still a huge amount of arrests. You know people working in the public sector are still incredibly scared. And you know I I, I don't think the kind of repercussions of the coup have played out yet. I think I think the country's still very much in its post coup stage. And that will be something that you'll be reporting on in the years ahead. I mean, you have been arrested twice, I believe. You talk about this in the book. This is something that everybody in Turkey really has to contend with, particularly journalists. It's even worse for local journalists. I mean, how does this constant sort of lingering fear of the authorities uh, affect your life and work? Yeah, I mean, I um, first of all, I was detained. I wasn't arrested. In both cases, it was, as I was reporting, there, there was one instance where I sort of, I can't really complain too much because I, I get it. I was um, I was in Nusaybin in, I think it was June 2016. So the, the military operations had just finished. And my fixture and I were driving from Shanlofa to Jusre, and we were on the road going past Nusaybin. And we, we looked at the entrance road and we saw that the checkpoint, this is been there throughout the military operations had gone so we were like oh let's go and take a look at town and we we went into the town and we found a couple of neighborhoods which had been completely flattened i mean it, the fighting had finished and they'd also then been kind of raised to the ground um, this was uh, fighting between the turkish it, military and uh, the pkk exactly exactly so this was the sort of fighting in the middle of 2015 after the peace process was called off um and you know in contrast to previous spurts of fighting between Turkish security forces and PKK, this was happening in the inner cities. You know, it was, it was very, very destructive and displaced a huge amount of people, did a huge amount of damage. Um, so, yeah, Nusaybin is a town right next to the Syrian border, like literally right next to the border fence. You know, a big smuggling area, a big bastion for the PKK. And it was, a, yeah, it was one of the towns really affected by the, the military curfews that came down and the, and the fighting between KK youth and the Turkish army and police. But yeah, when, when we got there, so the, the curfew had been lifted. We went into the town. We, we found neighbourhoods that had been completely flattened. There were just, I remember there were just a few uh, apartment blocks left standing and we went into one and there were some builders doing repairs on it. It had been sort of shot up and smashed windows and all kinds of things. And we asked them, why is this block still standing and the others have been torn down? And they said, well, the owner of this block is a Kurd who lives in Europe and he's threatening to take the Turkish government to the European court um, so for that reason they, they've allowed this one to stay up but the, you know, the ones that were just owned by people living locally had all been torn down but yeah anyway so, so we were sort of reporting there and talking to people and then as we tried to drive out of town then, then we found the checkpoint we drove straight into it and it was some uh, Turkish special forces who were not very pleased to see us there and obviously you know I have a press card and your residency and everything else but they yeah they took us to the nearest counter terrorism station I think they held us for about four hours. They, they were sort of checking everything, asking us who we were, going through all our bags, checking all our documents. And then finally they let us go. But I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I can't criticise them too much for that. You know, it's a, it's a war zone and there are military operations going on and, and we probably shouldn't have been there. Um, but I mean, the second time was, was slightly more worrying. It was just before the referendum in April 2017. So this is the referendum where Erdogan planned to change the constitution from parliamentary to presidential system. And I went reporting in a district of Istanbul called Kasukla, which is in Uskadar on the Asian side. And it's a very conservative but very upmarket district. And Erdogan has a villa there. 
um, and often prays in the mosque for Friday prayers. So I was going to, I'd been to kind of poorer AKP strongholds in the city earlier in the day and I wanted to get the other side. I wanted to get the kind of upper class, wealthy AKP supporters, find out what they thought about the referendum. I had gone into an estate agent to talk about you know, the area and what thoughts. And then literally a few minutes after I came out of there, plainclothes police came upon me and the translator I was working with. Again, took us to the side, we showed them all our documents. Then they separated us and put us in separate cars. And that's the point where I thought like, oh, you know, what's going on here? Because they, they wouldn't say what the problem was. You know, I, I kept saying like, I told them what I was doing and I was reporting on the referendum. And they one said, you know, what have people been telling you? And I said, everyone said they're voting yes for a vet. But yeah, so then they put us in separate cars and they actually took us to the same police station, although I didn't realise that. I, I didn't know they'd also taken my friend that. And I was held for about four or five hours, I think. Um, and they were saying, you know, we're going to bring the presidential guard to see you, why you're reporting in this area, et cetera, et cetera. And I, to be honest, I really started to panic. I thought, oh, oh man, I, you know, this could be the point where I get kicked out of the country. Weirdly, maybe this was a step too far. But yeah, in the end, they, they brought the presidential guards, but they didn't want to speak to me they just let me go when they were there and I, I never really did find out what had caused it I mean when I was when I was detained in the cyber it was all quite official and they took me to see an intelligence guy in that station and uh, they signed a paper to say what happened and blah blah, blah. but with, with this detention in uh, in Istanbul there was none of that I was never brought a translator I was never brought a female police officer nothing official and, it, and I think obviously at that point the difference with the previous detention was there was emergency rule at that point because it was after the coup and my gut feeling is they just wanted to ruin my day's reporting um you know obviously by the time I was let out and I found my friend who'd been let out half an hour before me you know it was sort of six in the evening and there was no day left and you know it's sort of shaken us both up a bit and I, I think that was kind of the whole point of it but yeah I mean for all journalists in Turkey this is a consideration you know I do have to say for foreign journalists we don't have it anywhere near as bad as Turkish journalists you know I feel quite I don't really want to complain too much because we have a huge amount of freedom compared to them. And to be really honest, like if the worst that can really happen to us is being detained for a few days and then kicked out of the country, whereas obviously, you know, we're seeing Turkish journalists spending months and years in, in prison. So, you know, I, I feel a bit reluctant to really say that the, the foreign press corps is too hard done by. But yeah, certainly this is always a consideration in the back of your head when you're going around reporting that even even with a press card and even, even having jumped through all the hoops to be legitimate here and to, to do an honest job as a journalist is always that thing in the back of your head that, you know, your day could end spending several hours in a police cell. Now, we've got this far without actually mentioning Erdogan very much. Uh, of course, he's the subject of uh, your new book that's about to come out. Uh, the book is basically a kind of biography of Erdogan, really, and a, an overview of contemporary Turkish sort of political history. I mean, how did the idea for the book uh, emerge? So actually, I, at first, my first thought I, was I wanted to write a book about Ataturk um, and how Ataturk is perceived in modern day Turkey, what he means in modern Turkey, how people feel about him. You know, I, I was quite interested in being in Turkey at this moment where Ataturk's power was just starting to slip. 
before I came here in 2013, I'd been to Turkey once before I came to Istanbul for a long weekend in, I think, 2008. And I really remember reading in the guidebook this warning, which is like, don't insult Ataturk in public. You know, even if you're in conversation with a Turk, don't criticize him saying, you know, the, the punishment could be prison if you insult him. And I'm thinking, God, this is real personality court stuff. And actually, when I moved here and I started, you know, meeting Turks and probably talking to Turks, I realised that there's actually quite a wide space for criticism of Ataturk. And that's something that had come about in the AKP era. Um, so, yeah, so my first, the first thing I wanted to do actually was to write a book about Ataturk and what he means in Turkey in, at this time. Um, when I started, when I started talking to an agent, it became quite clear that I couldn't write a book about modern Turkey without mentioning Erdogan. So then the idea sort of turned into looking at a comparison of Ataturk and Erdogan as as leaders and as men, as and as the kind of figureheads of of these different you know sides of Turkey. Almost, I, I guess, the two kind of personality cults of Turkey. And then, of course, inevitably after that, when I actually sat down and wrote the book, it, it ended up becoming far more about Erdogan because. You know, he isn't the be-all and end-all of Turkey, but he, he dominates Turkey to such an extent at this point. You know, I think any kind of examination of Turkey, Turkey in, in the second decade of the of the 21st century has to be based around him. So, I mean, there's still a large part of Ataturk in the book. And I, you know, I still really wanted to include that. And I really wanted to give the book some historical grounding through Ataturk, because I think it's a really interesting way of of examining Erdogan as well. I mean, the, the kind of standard argument is, oh well Erdogan is everything that Ataturk wasn't and Erdogan is trying to unravel unravel Ataturk's legacy and I you know to a certain extent that's true but then there's also quite a lot of similarities between the two men and certainly between the way that the cults of personality around them have been assembled and I you know I really wanted to, to bring that out in the book. Now, uh, one of the things that I think distinguishes your book is the rich set of sources that you use. I mean, you speak to a very wide range of actors from all sides, uh, from all kind of levels, including many people within the presidency itself. I mean, among the government, how has the reception to your questions changed over the years since you've been here? Uh, there's been observed among many people are kind of closing up. People are less receptive to questions. People are less willing to respond. Uh, is that something that you've observed uh, over your time here? or how has the how has the atmosphere changed for sure but i i mean i think i can't uh, separate my my experience of the Turkish government from my own kind of path as a journalist because I, I know that in my early years in Turkey my first contacts with the Turkish government were actually through AFAD, the disaster relief agency because I was reporting on Syria. So that was my first kind of contact with the Turkish government and obviously from their perspective because I was reporting from the rebel held side of Syria so the reporting that I was doing was about kind of you know, Assad's campaigns against civilian areas and the humanitarian crisis and, you know, a lot of the time what Turkey was doing to help. So I think my, my reporting in those early years was something that fitted very well with what the Turkish government wanted people to see of Turkey. Um, but also, you know, at that time, there were some very, very open people in the government. I mean, they were sort of doing quite a lot to try and charm and get foreign journalists on side. Um, so they would hold quite a lot of press conferences. I mean, I I remember 
when Yildirim was president, I think it was just after the coup, being invited to a big breakfast meeting with Yildirim. And occasionally there'll be rumours that we were going to be invited to a roundtable with Erdogan, which of course never materialised. But yeah, I mean, when I first started shifting from focusing solely on Syria to also looking at Turkey, they were incredibly receptive. And I, I think, you know, all the journalists who are working in Turkey will know of certain individuals working with the Turkish government who could always be relied on for a response or anything. You know, sort of Western-educated individuals who seem to really understand you know, what Western media was about, that, you know, a Western newspaper is not Daily Sabah and is is going to be critical and is is going to take a critical view. But certainly since the coup attempt, that circle has really closed in. And, you know, we, this isn't something that's hidden, you know, on a political level, all of the AKP's founders have drifted away from the party. You know, Erdogan's inner circle has basically shrunk down to loyalists and family members and yes men and, and also you know a lot of them people who only really came into politics post the Gulen corruption scandal in 2013 so and especially even sort of after the point after my book leaves off my, my book kind of ends after the parliamentary and presidential elections last year in June 2018 you know since then we've seen the rise of Faret and Alton who is now the communications chief he never talks to the press just never talks you know always with heads of press before we would be invited to no end of press conferences etc but yeah I mean really you feel now as a journalist that the message coming from Ankara in the broadest sense so all the ministries and all departments of state is very very centralised and very tightly controlled you know if you want I, I don't think these days there would be any ministry who would give you any kind of quote without going through the through Fred and Alton's communications office first but in terms of writing the book what was really interesting for me was as it came up up to those elections last year in, in June 2018. It, it's sort of hard to remember it now, but there was, you know, there was this huge momentum behind Maharam Inje, the CHP's presidential candidate. And, you know, a lot of people thought that he might take Erdogan to a second round and really for a few months there for at least yeah for at least a couple of months during that election campaign when people were thinking like hang on Erdogan might actually be seriously challenged here the fear lifted for for a good few weeks and insiders started to talk like they still didn't talk giving their names they still didn't want to be quoted by name sometimes they didn't want to be quoted at all but they started to talk and you know I, I had this couple of months right before the June 20th June 2018 election where a lot of people from within the party opened up to me you know people who were like completely disillusioned with what the party and Erdogan had become and I think that was the point where I got my best material from within inside the party and then when the results came in and Erdogan went it out right that window slammed shut straight away straight away presumably uh, meeting Erdogan himself uh, was not an option I tried. Yeah, I've never been able to meet Erdogan. I, I I always think, what would I ask him? You know, you get sort of one killer question, right, when you're when you're doing those kind of interviews. Um, and I've still not sort of settled on what I would ask. But yeah, I I have never been able to meet Erdogan. And in fact, I wasn't invited to the roundtable that he did quite recently with um, several foreign journalists. I, I wasn't invited to that. So yeah, so even in the years when, you know, I sort of had quite a good relationship with people in the Turkish government, that was never offered. 
I, I can't see the point of, for him of doing it, to be honest. I mean, he occasionally does things with sort of big TV news channels, but with a British newspaper, I mean, you know, his relationships with Britain are quite comfortable as it is. Why does he need to charm anyone in the British government? He's, he's, he's got them in quite a good position already. Among those who you do speak to is the uh, this Pelican Group, mm-hmm. and uh, this very interesting phenomenon. Uh, they've come under increasing criticism in recent years from within the AKP and also uh, outside. They've played a very significant role in uh, in recent years and months. And you say in the book that you've uh, you've been to this notorious Pelican Mansion mm-hmm. uh, four <laughs> times um, to to meet the people in this group. It's a kind of bit, it's a very difficult thing to describe. It's uh, it's kind of communications, journalistic sort of think tank, pro government organization headed by a number of journalists and other sort of insiders, and they've been criticised by many people for their kind of very aggressive tactics and uh, sort of hit jobs on various uh, unfortunate uh, targets. Just talk about this group, you know, what is it, what are your experiences there? And um, yeah, just kind of reflect on the kind of course that uh, discussion of the Pelican Group has taken in recent months. Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, the Pelican Group, I mean, the official name is the Bosphorus Centre for Global Affairs. So it's yeah. a, yeah, it's a think tank. They, they call themselves a think tank. I would call them a reputation management agency. I think that's what we would call them if they were based in London. So, yeah, so this is an organisation headed by uh, a guy called Sahib Oud, who is a sociologist, but more famously, he is the husband of Hilal Kaplan, who's a very famous columnist with Sabah newspaper, probably the most staunchly pro around of any newspaper, part managed by uh, Serhat Albarak, who is the brother of Berat Albarak, who is obviously the economy minister and Erdogan's son-in-law, so it's very much sort of part of the Erdogan family. So yeah, so this centre was set up in 2015, in August 2015, and its original mission was to kind of put a good spin on Turkey. You know, Turkey was starting to get a lot of really bad press internationally. Kobani had happened, if you remember during the Battle for Kobani in Syria, there were a lot of um, opposition voices and Kurdish voices saying, you know, Erdogan is working with ISIS and Erdogan, you know, wants to use ISIS to defeat the Kurds in Syria and all these kind of narratives springing up. And so the Bosphorus Centre, when it was set up, its aim was to put out some good news about Turkey. And they did that by focusing very heavily on the Syrian refugees. Of course, Turkey's taken a huge amount of Syrian refugees. So looking at that and also, as you say, hitting out quite aggressively against journalists who they felt were, were depicting Turkey unfairly. But my experience with them in, in first stage was that they had they were doing sort of very good cop bad cop jobs. So yeah, so on the one hand, they would use their social media accounts. They've got quite a wide array of different Twitter accounts and to sort of attack journalists online. And, and you know, it's the sort of classic trolling thing. They would they would tweet something about a journalist and then a lot of their followers will start retweeting it and it would turn into a sort of hate campaign. But then on the other hand, they were also holding various events for journalists, uh, for foreign journalists, in which you, you'd be invited to have dinner there and they would bring in various people from the party so advisors usually advisors they would bring in and they'd sit and they'd talk about various things to do with Turkey and to do with AKP policy you know they I remember going to one before the referendum where they were outlining 
Well, they said they were going to outline the legal case for and against Erdogan's referendum plans, but in fact, they, they only really outlined the whole case. But um, yeah, so they would do these sort of roundtables, which, I mean, although they were very, very clearly from one political viewpoint, they weren't balanced at all. They were quite civil and you could ask questions. And um, yeah, they, I think they tried to sort of send you away feeling that they, they were a sort of respectable outfit, a respectable think tank who should be quoted and listened to. And, you know, as journalists facing Turkey, for us it was quite obvious you know what they were doing but they also bring in British politicians as well they bring British politicians on paid trips you know hospitality trips to Turkey and take them to meet Erdogan and take them to meet Suleiman Soylu and use different terms refugee camps sometimes show British politicians refugee camps so they're also you know trying to sort of win influence in British politics as well but the moment when they sort of really became well known in Turkey and when they sort of assumed this nickname of the Pelican Group was just before Ahmet Davutoglu was ousted as Prime Minister in May 2016 uh, he was inter- ousted in an internal party coup just before that happened there was a blog post released online called Pelican Dossiasa which was just basically a sort of pages long attack on Davutoglu and on figures within the AKP who they perceived to be close to Davutoglu and it accused Davutoglu of sort of you know getting too big for his boots and you know trying to overshadow Erdogan yeah, so, so the Pelican Dossiasa was seen as the kind of opening act, the opening salvo in, in this ousting of Davutoglu. And in its language, it was incredibly similar to something else that uh, that Sahib Owat had written. And pretty soon people began speculating that it was, in fact, the Bosphorus Centre group who had written this blog post and organised Davutoglu's ousting. On one of my visits there, which was more of a kind of small-scale event, it was only me and one of the journalists, and we had dinner with Lal Kaplan and Sahai Bhutt, and there were a couple of other people there who I can't remember. And uh, the other journalist did actually ask Lal Kaplan outright whether she had been behind the Pelican Dossiasa, and she sort of avoided the question. I think she said something along the words of, well, people will think that, um, but she, she didn't deny it either. So that is the kind of history of the of the Bosphorus Centre group. Um, later it emerged, so not long after that, WikiLeaks published a lot of Berat al-Barak's emails. It's called Berat's Box. You can still find them on WikiLeaks. And some of those emails revealed that he had been involved in funding and setting up the Bosphorus Centre. So, I mean, it was always very clear from the start that it was politically aligned. But later it turned out that this is something that's been set up by Erdogan's son-in-law. And, you know, that fits in absolutely with what we've seen in the AKP, which is the kind of circle centred around Al-Bayrak, centred around Sabah newspaper, centred around SETA, which is a government think tank. You know, this is a circle that is now really, really powerful and influential within Erdogan's court since the ousting of Davutoglu. You know, I think the ousting of Davutoglu was the last real moment when somebody who was, you know, wanting to move negotiations forward, have good relations with the West. After Davutoglu was ousted, that was the end of all that. And we saw Erdogan almost immediately start taking a really, really staunchly anti-EU line. And within his party, those ultra-loyalists centred around the Bosphorus Centre, then rising to power within the circle. Um, the Bosphorus Centre is still going. It sort of does quite a lot of coup commemoration stuff now. You'll find a lot of, you know, they're doing a lot of videos about the coup. 
Um, they also, in the most bizarre publicity something they did, they, they managed to get Lindsay Lohan involved for about six months as kind of Turkey's chief cheerleader about refugees. You know, she was pictured alongside Hillel Kaplan in some of the refugee camps, talking about how much Turkey was doing. She started, uh, you know, when, when Lohan was interviewed for the celebrity press, she started saying in the middle of a sentence, oh, the world is bigger than five, which is, you know, an Erdogan catchphrase. Um, so that lasted for about six months in 2017, 2016, 2017. And, and then suddenly it went quiet. I, I tried to talk to Lindsay Lohan's agents about it and they, they weren't talking. But um, yeah, so they're, they're still doing sort of light spin and light propaganda, but the Pelican Dossiasi is what they really became famous for. And some of the um, critics, let's say conservative critics of the government, people who have taken on roles in previous years and who are now unhappy about the direction the government is taking, often sort of point the finger at this Pelican group. It almost stands in as a proxy. They don't want to criticise Erdogan. They don't perhaps even want to recognise that Erdogan is responsible. So it's perhaps the emotional response to this kind of loyalty that they feel to him. And they sort of put everything at the door of this Pelican group and say, you know, the Istanbul rerun for example most recently they were sort of critical of this decision from the off and the reason why it was such a catastrophe for the party is because basically the Pelican group was behind this rerun decision Erdogan didn't really have anything to do with it he was pushed into it by this Pelican group do you think there's any validity in that argument at all or do you think it's too naive to say that I I mean there could be it's very very hard to know sort of where the decisions are being actually taken at this point whether it's you know Erdogan taking all the decisions himself or whether it's being taken by this very sort of small group of people that now surround him which include the the Pelican people uh, and particularly Berat Albarak the son-in-law I mean certainly I think there's huge unhappiness within AKP circles now I mean even before Imamolu won the rerun of the election when I was talking to people who still call themselves AKP supporters and and even Erdogan supporters were just so unhappy about this decision to rerun the election and separately so unhappy about some of these people who now wield an awful amount of power within the circle so you know, I think the, the feeling about Berat Al-Barak and the Pelican group in a lot of the kind of older school AKP circles, you know, the, the people who have been around since the late 90s, early 2000s, is that, you know, the Pelican group are people who are very young and have got successful very quickly and are only successful because of their complete loyalty to Erdogan. You know, they haven't proved themselves in business or in politics or in anything outside of this. Like, this is the only thing they have going for them is that they are completely loyal to Erdogan. And I think, you know, that's what people are unhappy at. And they think that the reason why Erdogan is taking such terrible decisions these days is because of these people around him. Now, whether whether they are directing that blame at people around him because they still, deep in their heart, want to believe in Erdogan, or whether they're doing that because it's a kind of safe way to criticise Erdogan, I, I'm not sure. But certainly, yeah, that's the feeling that I'm getting from, from disheartened AKP members and voters. Now, the book is very much about Erdogan as this sort of supreme, almost all-powerful leader. And that has been really the narrative in the last few years for good reason. But in recent months, uh, the conversation in Turkey is sometimes, among some people, about his sort of decline or relative decline. The decline of the AKP as this sort of popular force. And the sort of sense that Erdogan is sort of falling out of touch. There are other perhaps forces emerging that maybe won't challenge him, but will perhaps complicate the direction of travel. 
talk about this. I mean, do you sort of recognise this? Do you have any reflections on this whole debate about, you know, perhaps Erdogan is now in the sort of twilight almost, and while he still holds all the reins of power, often when he presses buttons or tries to do things, they don't have the effect that he wants them to have. The economy is a bit of a car crash. The sort of streak of form that he hit in his earlier years, those conditions have now evaporated, and we're now looking at a completely different Turkey. What do you make of these debates uh, over the last few months? Well, I think there there are two separate things which people often conflate when they're talking about this, which is power and popularity. So, I mean, certainly in terms of popularity, I think the decline in his popularity, it's undeniable, right? It, I mean, all sorts of things that contributed to that. I think people are just sick of this really, really caustic rhetoric uh, that he's been using, certainly since 2015. They're, they're really, really worried about the economy, you know, and, and there's always been a large contingent who never liked him in the first place but yeah so in terms of popularity yes but I think especially after Imamoglu won the Istanbul rerun I think people were looking at the decline in popularity and seeing it as a decline in power and I think they were forgetting that under this rewritten constitution that came into power last year Erdogan holds a huge amount of power still and you know we've seen that just today you know the the central bank announcing a whacking great rates cut just a few weeks after Erdogan sacked the head of the central bank who'd been pushing it back against cutting rates you know this shows the extent to which this one man can still wield huge power over the country i mean and under the constitution he holds almost all the reins of power but what the rerun of the istanbul elections proved i think is that when you go too far with trying to tamper with uh, the results of the ballot box. So in Erdogan's case, by pushing and pushing and pushing for the original March votes to be overturned. When you go too far down that road, Turkish people won't accept it. And, you know, what's very clear was that in the in the rerun of, of the uh, local elections, a lot of people who had voted for AKP in March turned around and voted for Imamoglu. But in the meantime, I think we also have to remember there's not another election scheduled until 2023. That's four years' time. And in the meantime, Erdogan holds a huge, huge amount of executive power. And, you know, most of the kind of organs of state, the bureaucracy is is stuck with his loyalists. So I don't think, unless something very, very dramatic happens, we're not going to see a quick end to his time in office. I, I don't think his era has yet fully run its course. And I certainly don't think that Turkey is at a stage where he could be displaced at this point by, for example, street protests. You know, you you have to have a huge amount, you know, an overwhelming amount of opposition and discontent before a leader like Erdogan can be can be ousted through street protests. You have to have huge amounts of security forces turning against him, and you know, people in the government turning against him. And I, I just don't see that happening for quite a long time to come. What do you make uh, briefly about this uh, sort of new party that's being heralded, probably going to be formed in the coming months? Ali Babajan, former Deputy Prime Minister, has held a lot of positions, is planning to form this new sort of breakaway, really, from the AKP, uh, along sort of maybe in alliance with uh, former President Abdullah Gül. And there are some people saying that this might be able to take a few points off the AKP, at least. And also Ahmet Davutoglu is sort of carrying out preparations for a new party, perhaps separately. Uh, do you think this has a sort of game-changing potential or uh, are these sort of futile efforts? 
I don't think it's game changing. I mean, it, it's been talked about for so long. Like, you know, every time sort of Erdogan might be stumbling a little bit in the last few years, always this talk that Davutoglu and Gül and, and the Babajan are going to form a new party. And, it, you know, it never happened. And then obviously the rerun of the Istanbul elections was such a huge setback for Erdogan. Um, you know, finally they grew the balls to do it. But, you know, I think there's a couple of problems. You know, they faltered for so long over this. You know, the country's been been descending on all fronts for a really long time and they've sort of you know stood back and and waited until they felt brave enough to make a move and you know I I just feel that if it took them this long to build up the courage I'm sure Erdogan can do something to take away that courage you know I don't have the greatest faith that they're going to have the backbone to stick it out and and secondly I mean they're also tainted by all this you know what happened to Davitola in 2016 was appalling but you know when you look at especially the Syria policy you know they might might have sort of separated themselves from the party when things got really really bad but they were there for some of the really bad stuff as well and I you know I think you know certainly people who've always been in opposition to AKP are never going to be convinced by them but also I don't know I mean if I was a disgruntled AKP voter I I think I'd want some new faces I I don't think I'd want a party led by these guys who are whose hands are kind of dirty as well so I don't know you know I like you say they they could if they set up this new party they could split the AKP vote for sure but um no, I, I can't see it being a, a real game changer. I, I think the kind of centre-right has to completely reform itself and come up with something new in order to be appealing. Now, going back to the book, uh, this is your first book. I think uh, just to conclude, could you just talk about what the experience of writing it was like, what the writing process was like? Was it easier or more difficult than you expected? Uh, was there anything surprising perhaps that stands out from the whole experience? Uh, and do you have any other books planned in the pipeline, I suppose? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it took me nearly two years to write it. It was a long effort. And I was still, I was still doing my day, day job at the same time. I was still doing newspaper reporting at the same time, which in some ways, I mean, sounds horrendous. I was kind of writing for the newspaper in the day and writing a book at night. But in some ways, it was very, very good because obviously I'm reporting on Turkey and I was writing a book about Turkey. So it kept everything very fresh in my mind. And, you know, a lot of the kind of interviews that I was doing for the book were really helpful for contextualizing a lot of my news reporting, especially when it came to last year's election. So it was kind of a tough slog but I, it was so enjoyable because what I did I, I've got shelves of notebooks stretching back to early 2013 when I first rocked up in Syria and so I literally went back and started reading through it again sort of trying to work out what the kind of narrative threads were in a storytelling sense but also what the themes were trying to work out what had happened because it's only it's only with hindsight that you can really work a lot of the kind of cause and effect out. Um, you know, when you're a news reporter and you're writing something to a four-hour deadline and then next day you're on to something else, you, it's difficult to stand back and really make sense of it in a big in a big scale. But yeah, so I, I went back and I read all my old notes and then I started drawing up lists of people I should talk to to try and help me contextualise it and to try and help me make sense of it. And, it, you know, for, for somebody who's used to just doing like daily news journalism, it was so satisfying because I felt like okay like here I get the chance to like take all this reporting that I've done and all the interviews I've done and things I've seen which have never made it into news reports and try and thread it together and make it into something I guess make it into like the second draft of history right if journalists write the first draft then I wanted to try and write the second draft and it was really really enjoyable for me although I was very very glad <laughs> I was very glad when I got the manuscripts in and I had my evenings back
In terms of what I want to write next, oh God, I don't really think about writing another book, but I know I'm going to have to. I am quite interested in where the fault lines lie, where the new fault lines lie between Russia and the West. That's a very, very vague idea, which I obviously need to think through a lot more. But yeah, I I find this very, very interesting, you know, how the new Cold War is shaping up. Um, And obviously, again, Turkey is at the centre of that. You know, we've seen since 2016, Erdogan's swivel from, I would never have called Turkey a sort of fully paid up pro-Western member of the club, but, you know, certainly we've seen his swivel towards Putin and Putin. Putin really skillfully handling everything that's gone on between Turkey and the West. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very interested in it, where these kind of fractures lie. Um, so we'll see. Maybe in another five years I'll write another book. That was Hannah Lucinda Smith. Many thanks to her. Don't forget to consider signing up as a Turkey Book Talk member if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support it. Membership gets you that special 35% discount on Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts in English and Turkish of every interview as it's published. Transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive of almost 100 conversations so far and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me covering Turkish history and politics, literature and various other things. become a member and get all that just pledge a minimum of three dollars per episode via turkey book talks official patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever platform you use follow via twitter or like the facebook page to stay fully updated with new episodes and i do enjoy hearing from listeners so please do send any recommendations feedback or abuse to william john armstrong at gmail.com but until the next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks once again thank you very much for listening Bitches!